One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, who's going to be with the Lord now in heaven. But in his book, which I'm currently reading again, uh, his book called The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells a very strange story, actually, about a character who is tormented by a red lizard that shows up on his shoulder. Here's somebody's artwork of the red lizard. The lizard, by the way, represents something. It's a fictional book. So it represents the indwelling sin that we all face. This red lizard, remember, representing the indwelling sin we all face, is constantly mocking this young man. And then an angel comes along and offers to remove the lizard. And the young man is initially, of course, uh, excited and thrilled. And, and he's thinking to himself, hey, I can, I can get rid of this thing that is tormenting me. And you'll see in, the, in this, uh, this next picture here that the young man uh, the, recognizes the angel is, is glowing with a deadly heat. And the way that he's going to remove the lizard is by killing it. The young man suggests that maybe it really isn't necessary for that lizard to die. Maybe, maybe my indwelling sin doesn't need to die. And perhaps another time is better for dealing with my lizard, my indwelling sin. And so the angel is a good angel. He's not going to be put off by this. And so the angel says this, quote, The moment contains all moments. This moment contains all moments, he says. The lizard, then recognizing the danger he is in, also begins to strive for his life from a, from a new angle. And he tries to unsettle the young man with doubts and suggestions. And the lizard said this, quote, Be careful, the angel can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. And then you will be without me forever and ever. It is not natural. How could you live? How could you live? You will be only a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He does not understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it is not for us. I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I have sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I will give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. End quote. Notice those words, almost innocent. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis was very wise. God gave him great wisdom. But with those words, notice we, we often justify our sin and we we compromise ourselves, and, and we reason like this. Hey, it, it can't really hurt me. It can't really hurt me. So we play around with the red lizard, and we let it live. And even if it is wrong, to be without such flaws, is, is, is that really to be human? That's how we reason sometimes. I mean, who could live that way? <laughs> how can I live without the red lizard? And so with those kind of words, we convince ourselves that the remnants of sin in our lives are not really dangerous, and that almost innocence is safe enough. But is it? Is it really safe enough? That's a question for you to ponder. 
as we come to God's Word, God's Word, as always, gives us everything we need for life and godliness, Peter tells us. So look what God has to say to you today, my friends. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But! But! (laughs) I love that word. But! That is not the way you learned Christ! Exclamation point. Assuming that you have heard about Him, and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to be put and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. By the way, if you're wondering the rest of the story, I'll give you a few hints later. But here's the proposition coming from this particular text that Here's what God wants you to do, my friends. God wants you to live a godly lifestyle. That is God's will for your life. That is His desire for you to live a godly lifestyle. And so in this text here, uh, we're going to see two ways to glorify Christ. There's two ways for you to glorify Christ. Number one, believers are to avoid an ungodly lifestyle. That's that first part. In verses 17 through 19, God wants you to avoid an ungodly lifestyle. Notice the Apostle Paul's very serious warning there in verse 17. It's very serious when he says to these uh, Ephesian Christians that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, remember the context of Ephesus, my friends. It had one, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Temple of Diana, or as the Greeks called her, Artemis. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This place was, was massive. It was, it was kind of the center of, of kind of the known world at that time. Very sensual. Other issues going on there. But, and so it, right there in that context, there, there was a church. And Paul says, hey, Christians must be on a different path than the unbelievers around you. So when he's talking about the Gentiles, he's particularly referring to the unbelievers. Christians have to be different. And notice how Paul describes their ungodly lifestyle. And this is what you're to avoid if you're a believer. If you're a Christian, this is what you must avoid. Number one, the ungodly lifestyle is empty. The ungodly lifestyle is described as empty there in verse 17. Uh, my Bible has the word futile or futile, however you want to say it. The idea is that the, this lifestyle, these people are confused. They are living on empty thoughts. Some have described this as intellectually unproductive. <laughs> That's the idea of futile in the ESV and the New American Standard, both translated with futile. 
But the idea is there it's empty, intellectually unproductive. So let me ask you, my friends, what determines your lifestyle? It is significant, by the way, that the basic issue of lifestyle centers in your mind. Did you notice it centers in your mind? Because the end of verse 17 says, notice it's in the futility of their minds. It's in the futility of their minds. Their minds are confused and empty, intellectually unproductive. And because unbelievers and and, and Christians think differently, they're to act differently. So out of of your mind is going to come your actions, right? So as far as spiritual and moral issues are concerned, an unbeliever can't think straight, according to God. So their rational processes in those areas are warped and they're insufficient. That's why God describes them as futile. So futility, if you're wondering what that means, it's just it's referring to that which fails to produce the desired result. That which never succeeds, it amounts to nothing. So the spiritual thinking and, and the resulting lifestyle of the ungodly is therefore empty, it's vain, and it's void of substance. So what's the goal of an ungodly person? Well, basically, it's selfishness. Selfishness. They live for themselves. The life of an unbeliever is bound up in, in what is trivial and temporary. And that's why the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, says this. So uh, Solomon's kind of summarizing what's life like under on planet Earth without God. Well, here it is. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Have any of you tried to run after wind? Have any of you tried to grasp wind and catch it in your hands? Like, there it goes. I got it. You ever tried that? No, because you'd be put in an insane asylum, wouldn't you? Because you, people would think you're weird and you don't want to appear weird, so you don't do weird things like that. Because that's just foolishness. You can't strive after wind, and that's what Solomon's telling you there. It's just vanity. It's emptiness, worthlessness. And that's how God's describing the ungodly lifestyle. It's empty. And number two... The ungodly lifestyle here is described as dark. Dark. Uh, These people have closed minds. They're spiritually uninformed. It doesn't mean that their brain is dead. It just means they're spiritually uninformed there in verse 18. When God says that they are darkened in their understanding. So darkened here, by the way, is a continuing condition. And what's the cause of that? Notice the cause is the hardness of their hearts. It's their, their willful determination to remain in their sin. They love their sin. They don't want to be moved from that. Just like the guy with the red lizard on his shoulder. And, and, and because men, people determined to reject God, what do they do? They blind their minds, which excludes them from God's presence, and then it confirms them even further in their spiritual ignorance. And they can't get the help that they need. So they have closed minds, spiritually uninformed. That means they're dark. And so number three, the ungodly lifestyle is described here as hard. These people have hardened hearts. And so the hardened hearts, this hardness, by the way, carries the idea of being rock hard. 
Uh, let me illustrate it this way. It's kind of like, have any of you ever seen petrified wood? Petrified wood, very interesting. It used to be wood. <laughs> but because of chemicals getting into the wood and so forth, it, it turns rock hard. And I've been to the petrified forest. There's actually a national park in uh, the United States um, called the Petrified National Park. Anyway, Petrified Forest National Park. And it's interesting, you've got all these these trees laying around that uh, that have that are really hard because they've been petrified. They've they have been influenced by some outside forces, and it's gone all the way through the wood. That's what sin does. Sin has a petrifying effect on us, and so because of the hardness of their heart here, the ungodly then become unresponsive to the truth. Just as a corpse cannot hear a conversation in the, the mortuary, the, the, this, the person here who is spiritually dead can't hear. They can't understand the things of God. You ever witness to somebody who is an unbeliever, who is unsaved, who is lost, and, and you, you can read them the Bible and they just don't get it? They don't understand it? That's why. That's why. They're dark. Number four, it's, just, it's building on this, all of this here, isn't it? Number four is that they're dead. The, the ungodly lifestyle here is described as dead. In other words, they are spiritually separated from God. That, that's what makes them dead. And sadly, this separation makes a lot of nasty, ugly, evil things possible in this world. Do you wonder why a lot of disgusting, horrible, evil happens in our world? This is why. Because people are spiritually dead. Let me just give you a few examples that, have, that I've learned about over the years. If you don't know about these, uh, particularly this first guy, that's okay. But you'll get the point. Uh, the guy, uh, Ted Bundy, any of you heard of Ted Bundy? He wasn't born with that name. He was originally called Theodore Robert Cowell. Anyway, he was an American serial killer who was very active from 1974 to 1978. Bundy was uh, eventually executed in an electric chair back in 1989. But anyway, uh, after more than a decade of just vigorous denials, he eventually confessed to over 30 murders. Although the actual total number of victims remains unknown today, uh, estimates range anywhere from 26 to 100 victims. The general estimate is is kind of in the middle. But typically, Bundy would do horrible things to people, which I don't even really want to get into. It's just disgusting, uh, the, the sort of stuff he would do. He loved to strangle people to death, one of the things. But anyway, uh, of course, then he did disgusting things with the corpse as well. It's just the way he was. But this is... This is the result. How, how do people do that sort of thing, you wonder? How can they do such great evilness? Well, it's, it's because they're spiritually dead. Uh, another one that comes to my mind is the Holocaust. And it's sad that people want, we, we live, uh, it's been nicknamed today the cancel culture, the cancel movement going on today. You see it going on even around the world now, don't you? People want to rewrite history and uh, one of the things people have tried to deny is the Holocaust, which is the genocide of approximately 6 million European Jews during World War II. 
It was a, a program of systematic state-sponsored extermination by, by the Nazis in Germany. The genocide of those six million people was a, a genocide of two-thirds of the population of, of the nine million Jews. And some scholars maintain that the definition of the Holocaust should include the Nazi systematic murder of millions of other groups of people as well. It wasn't just Jews. Uh, you could include um, people who were disabled, uh, Soviet prisoners of war were executed, Polish and Soviet civilians, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, and other political religious opponents of the Nazis, just to name a few. And so by that definition, the total number of the Holocaust victims was, is estimated to be up to 17 million people. Every one of those individuals made in the image of God. How does that evil happen? It's because people like Hitler are spiritually dead. Just what God is telling us here. It's dangerous, the consequences of ideologies and what people believe. But it goes on. The, the Scripture also tells us the, uh, the ungodly lifestyle here is also calloused. It's calloused. And the, the idea there is they, these people are morally insensitive. They're morally insensitive. In verse 19 it says, They have become callous. You know what calluses are, right? If you don't know what they are, just go shake my brother's hand here after the sermon. And you'll feel all the calluses on a farmer's hand. Right? You'll be surrounded by his huge hand and all the calluses, right? It's it's a wonderful feeling, by the way. I love that feeling. Um, uh, it's starting to get creepy, I know. But um, I just don't, I don't get all these calluses. I don't, you know, I sit at a desk too much. But anyway... But how does somebody get calluses on their hands or their feet or anywhere else in your body? It's, it's going to take friction and, you know, some, some work maybe. There's things going on there that makes the skin just kind of go like a little bit dead, isn't it? Well, these people are, are not um, that way. They're just morally insensitive. And so when people continue, how, do, how does that happen, you say, by the way? And so it's, it's when people continue in their sin and they turn themselves away from God that they become then apathetic and they become insensitive about, uh, not physical things, but more of the, the, the moral and the spiritual things of life. And so they reject all the standards that God has and, and they don't care about the consequences of that. I heard about an illustration, let me illustrate it this way. I heard about an illustration I found interesting. Uh, it, it's coming from the ancient Greeks. And according to, the, to an ancient Greek story, there was a young Spartan boy. How would you like to grow up in Sparta as a boy? Woo! Sparta, Spartan, uh, a Sparta Greece boy had a hard life. Anyway, this boy, uh, does what a lot of boys does. Uh, he, he stole something. But in this case, he stole a fox. Not your normal thing to steal, is it, Ezra? But um, after stealing the fox, he ended up coming across an adult. And, of course, he didn't want the adult to know that he had stolen this fox. So uh, he tried to hide the fox. And, and so to keep his 
theft from becoming discovered, what he did is he, he hid the, the fox in his clothes, up in his belly, right, uh, under his clothes, and he, and he tried to stand there without moving a muscle with his fox under his clothes. And, and the, fro- the fox, of course, didn't like that. It became frightened. And eventually, the um, so here, here's the boy talking to the adult, trying to hide this fox, and he's trying to you know, smile and act like everything's normal. And, you know, there, there's nothing in my under my clothes. I'm okay, right? So he's trying to act normal. And, and while he's doing all this, the fox is ripping his vital organs to shreds. So even at the cost of his own painful death, he was not willing to admit that he was wrong. It's an interesting story, is it not? You say, I would never do that. Oh, but we do that in other ways. <laughs> With our moral insensitivity sometimes. And our wicked society is often this way too. It's, they're so so determined not to be discovered for, for what it is that that they stand unwavering in their positions, in, in their ideas and their philosophies, while the, the sin just rips them to shreds and tears out their vital organs and kills them. Reminds me of... I don't know if you know who Tiger Woods is, but uh, it reminds me of Tiger Woods, uh, who used to be the number one golfer in the entire world. He, he, in his heyday, he was amazing. Uh, not so much today. He was kind of like the Michael Jordan of his day. He, everybody in the world seemed to know who he was. He was world famous, an awesome golfer, but he had sin going on in his life, as many of you know, and as a result, um, of course, that he was trying to hide it all, and, and the last thing he wanted is for, for everybody to know about his sin and his unfaithfulness to his wife and so forth, and eventually it it destroyed him as a person, destroyed his game of golf, and he's never been the same since. And that's an example of, of the moral insensitivity that can happen in people's lives, and it, and it is self-destructive. It's not a healthy thing. But there's a last one that's mentioned here in, in this passage. It, it is also sensual. The ungodly lifestyle is sensual. These People have, um, they are behaviorally depraved, in other words. Because look what verse 19 says there. So, so they, they become callous, and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They're sensual. So notice the callousness eventually leads to the sensuality. So if you're wondering how someone becomes like that, well, you've you got to go back a few steps. That sensuality refers to the absence of all moral restraint, especially in regard to sexual sins. So denying one oneself the indulgence of sin is actually freeing. Denying yourself, when Jesus says deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him, He's, he's not trying to restrict you. <laughs> Jesus is being good to you when He tells you those sort of things. The, the denying of the indulgence of sin is, is freeing. Let me illustrate it as C.S. Lewis continues in his interesting book, The Great Divorce, because he describes this phenomenon as he continues to tell the story of the, the, the red lizard. 
So, if you remember, we left the, the red lizard on, his, on the guy's shoulder, and, and the red lizard was still alive. Remember, the red lizard represents your indwelling sin. But the angel does eventually attack the lizard. He seizes the lizard with his fiery hands, and with great power he chokes the life out of that, that red lizard representing indwelling sin. So the, 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 the red lizard falls to the ground, but surprisingly, the, the red lizard doesn't die. Instead, the, the lizard actually changes. That ugly red lizard becomes a beautiful stallion. Um, for you horse lovers, I hope that represents a beautiful stallion. So, uh, I hope you think it is. And if, if it's not, I'm sorry. But uh, don't ruin my illustration here, okay? I love this beautiful horse. But the lizard becomes this beautiful stallion. The beast that was on the shoulder mocking the man now becomes something to be mounted and ridden by the young man. And it's interesting in the book, The Great Divorce, that's exactly what he does. He who is mastered by this lizard now becomes the master of something that's bigger and more beautiful and more helpful, (laughs) certainly. So even though he was in bondage, he's now become free. What was once ugly is now beautiful, even though it's it's actually the, the same creature, but the creature was transformed. I love how the, you see that imagery and even in a fictional book like that. But knowing the freedom and the beauty of, of this horse here is the life the Apostle Paul is trying to describe for you here. What does a godly life look like? See, you can be transformed from an ugly red lizard to a beautiful stallion as well. And and we need to know, by the way, what a godly life looks like. Because despite what some people try to tell you, ignorance is not bliss. It's not. Ignorance is not bliss. It's not a good thing. You need to know what this looks like and what it is for at least two reasons. Number one, you need to know so that you can experience freedom from the consequences of sin. There are consequences to sin. You can't get away with it. Uh, The other reason to know is so that you can glorify God. That's your whole purpose in life. That's why you're here. And so those are two good reasons uh, to not be ignorant, to know. So here's the second way that you can glorify Jesus Christ. See, here it is. Number two, believers are to live a godly lifestyle. How is this possible? What does this look like? Well, just a couple simple points Let me highlight them for you from the text here. Starting in verse 20, God says to listen and learn Christ. That's the first point he makes. Listen and learn Christ. It's interesting how he puts it. Because he's starting with a contrasting word, the conjunction but there in verse 20. So there's the old self, the ungodly lifestyle, but don't be that way, be this way. Do you see the contrast in verse 20? But that is not the way you learn Christ. (laughs) It's very interesting, isn't it? So the word but showing this contrast from the darkened understanding of the ungodly to to something that's bigger and more beautiful and better. And that word learned, by the way, here does not refer only, uh, is not referring only to just filling your head with knowledge. 
or or a, a, just a raw understanding. It's referring to a relational knowledge. You actually have a relationship with this person who is named Christ. So what's the Apostle Paul saying? He, he's Of course, he's speaking to the Ephesians uh, and, and saying, hey, the gospel, this position that I've already told you about in chapters 1 and 2, should have an effect on you. you. If you've had an encounter with the gospel, it needs to have this relational then encounter with Christ. So what is the content of this learning? Well, the content, uh, Christ is, is the short answer. Christ is the content of this teaching that you need to know. And what does it mean to learn Christ then? What does it mean? What does it mean to learn Christ? Well, here's a helpful comment from a commentator. Quote, it's on the screen here for you. Learning Christ means welcoming Him as a living person and being shaped by His teaching. This involves submitting to His rule of righteousness and responding to His summons to standards and values completely different from what they have known. End quote. Well, that would certainly be the case for the Ephesian Christians in the city of Ephesus. Vastly different from what they had known. And by the way, in verse 21, it's interesting, there's that twofold statement explaining more fully what was involved in learning Christ. So if you're not, if you're still not getting it, you look at verse 21, uh, notice the, the first expression says, you have heard about him. That expression's drawing attention to the initial response to Jesus Christ. See, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, that's what it's talking about there. That's what happened to you at the moment of salvation when God regenerated you and converted you. But the second expression says, you were taught in Him. Now that's showing this ongoing instruction that should be happening in every believer's life. You say, well, what instruction? Well, look at verse 21. Uh, the last phrase in verse 21 says, the truth is in who? Jesus. There's truth in Jesus. Jesus says He is the truth in John 14. But what's the point? Well, the historical Jesus is Himself the truth. And this Jesus, by the way, is not merely some historical figure. He's not just a religious concept. He's just not a good teacher. He's far more than that. He is real, and He is living, and, and we can have a relationship with Him. What a blessing. So that's where it starts. Godly lifestyle starts with learning Christ. Starts at salvation and should keep going on in your sanctification. But number two, there's a second point to be made here. Remember, you have put off the old self. You have put off the old self. Now, that's past tense, by the way, for, for someone who is a Christian. You may not fully get that idea from verse 22 when it says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Maybe the former manner of life is should be giving you a clue to this is past. It's something that's corrupt through deceitful desires, it says there. By the way, this is not a command. I know it comes across that way. I've always thought of it as a command, but technically it's not. Paul's not here exhorting to believers to do this. The point is, my friend, this is something that has already happened to you, and it happened at the point of conversion. And that, that's one of the main points that Paul's making, by the way, in Romans chapter 6. 
In Romans chapter 6, one of the key words there is know. He wants you to know this has already happened so that you can be involved in this whole sanctification process. Anyway, that's read Romans chapter 6, wonderful passage. So it's not happening at the point of conversion. So what's the point I'm trying to make? Well, to become a believer is signifying a, a break with your past. You just can't continue on just like continue on normal, right? This is actually a reminder here of that conversion experience. We need to be reminded of that. The reality is, by the way, this process is not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. It's difficult. But we're learning to be what we actually are. That's what, that's what the Bible's encouraging us here. We have to be something that we were not. And one commentator said this, quote, We do not now have to yield to the patterns of the life we once knew. If we choose to crawl into the casket with our old self, though it is dead to us, we can be corrupted by our past, but we are not casket controlled. End quote. Right? What a disgusting picture, but do you get the point? Your old self is dead. It's in the casket. Don't go crawl in the casket. That's disgusting. You will be affected by that dead body in there if you do that. Not a good thing. So yes, it's hard to live a godly life, but it is possible because the Holy Spirit resides within every believer. Third point. As we talk about this godly lifestyle, the Bible tells us to allow yourself to be continually to be renewed in your mind. So there's the mind popping up again, as it did earlier. Because verse 23 tells us, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Again, this is not a command. It's a renewal process. This It's certainly a process. It doesn't happen all at once, in other words. And it suggests that God is the one who's affecting the ongoing work of this renewing in His people. God's the one doing this work. At the same time, though, we should view this statement here as a continual challenge to us. I mean, how do we renew our minds? God's going to do the work, but you can't just sit around and do nothing. Right? You don't have a USB port on your brain. You know what a USB port is, right? You know, like you do in your computer. It's not that easy. See, you have to be reading and meditating upon God's Word. God tells you to be doing that day and night, all the, well, every day anyway, at least. It's a continual process. And, and notice what Paul also says here in Romans 12, verse 2, where he says, Don't allow yourself to be conformed to the world. Don't let the world press you into its mold. It's trying to. It's like Play-Doh. You ever played with Play-Doh? And you get one of these molds, and you take your Play-Doh, your soft little moldable Play-Doh, and you press it into the mold, and of course you get whatever the mold is. The world's trying to do that to you. Press you into its mold. But God says, no, don't, don't let that happen. You need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God's Word can do that. God's Word can transform even the way you think, that you would think like God. But the last point that needs to be mentioned here in verse 24 is this. Number four, remember you have put on the new self. It's kind of like clothing. 
You ever had dirty clothing and you, maybe you've been working in the garden or at work or wherever you, wherever you, right? You get all the, you get the dirty clothing and you, you, you maybe, <clears throat> I don't know, you come into a part of your house, mudroom or whatever you want to call it, and you take off that dirty, disgusting clothing and it goes in the washing machine or wherever you put it and hopefully it gets washed and then, then you, and you can freshen up and, and take a shower, put on clean clothing and you're feeling good, right? That's kind of the idea here. And again, by the way, it's not a command, but it does have the force of a command coming behind it. it, it there's several important features of this new person here that need to be drawn to our attention. First of all, let me just highlight here that God's the author of this new creation. Right? You can't do this on your own. God is the one who does this work in your life. Why do I say that? Because notice that verb in your Bible, that that verb, that word created, is passive in the original language. It's passive. In other words, you're not doing it. It's what's happening to you from an outside force. God's the one who does this. And, and second of all, God's also the pattern or the, the model of this new creation. Whose likeness are you being made in? Notice, you're being made in the likeness of God. You're being made in His likeness. And the third thing we need to mention from this verse is that since God's the author and God is also the model, therefore you're to be like Him. Kind of the logical conclusion, right? If He's the author and then He models it for you and God sends His Son Jesus Christ as a living model for you and the Bible says be conformed into His image, then, well, then I, I'm supposed to be like Him, right? In principle, yes. In principle, believers are already a part of God's new creation. And so, therefore, our conduct needs to be consistent with the position that Paul's been telling us in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, he's been talking about our status in Jesus Christ. So what does a godly life look like, you say? You're talking about the, the ungodly lifestyle, and you've talked about a godly lifestyle can you give me some more information? I'm glad you asked. I know you're thinking that. Because that's the next verses we'll talk about next week. Right? So hold, put, hold, hold, your, hold, hold yourself together for one week. We'll get into these next week. But here, let me just throw them on the screen real quick. It's kind of the outline, sort of the outline you're, you're going to see next week. Here they are. First of all, as Paul often does, he tells you what to put off. Kind of like the old dirty clothes. Take them off, get rid of those old disgusting clothes, and put on some new clothes. Here's what you're to put off. Starting in verse 24, he says, put off lying, then uncontrolled anger, then stealing. Number four is corrupt longings, and then number five, grieving the Holy Spirit. Those things are a part of an ungodly lifestyle. Those are things that are not conformed to the image of Christ and do not please God and do not honor God. And so, as Paul often does, he gives you a list of things to put off, but he doesn't leave you just hanging there. He says, okay, in its place, you take off those disgusting clothes and put on some new clean ones. Here they are. What do I put on in its place? Verse 25, truthfulness, honest labor, helping those in need, building one another up, kindness and compassion, and then last of all is forgiveness. There you go. That's a good picture to start with there of a godly lifestyle by the way this um 
this passage here is is kind of one of my go-to passages of when I try to help myself or anybody else with uh, with my own indwelling sin. Uh, I call it the, uh, it's not original with me, but I call it the principle of replacement. The principle of replacement is where you, you put off your your sin, but your your sin has to be replaced with something of like kind. So you just can't have a vacuum. It's not enough to just put off. It has to have has to be replaced with something. And that's what God's telling you to do. That's the example he's in the model he's presenting here to us. For example, let's just take the lying. If you're a liar and you just stop lying, what are you left with? What do you just not talk? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. If you're a liar, you yeah, by all means put off lying. But notice in verse 25, God says to speak truth. What do you replace lying with? Truth. Speak truth, right? That's it's that simple. What, what if someone's lazy? They have the sin of laziness. What does God tell you to do? He, so, he tells you, work. What if you like to steal things? What does God tell you to do? If, if you steal things, God says, stop. And then what does he say? Give. Right? Do you, do you see how that works? You put off, you put on. It's called the principle of replacement. Here's three steps. So number one, you put off the old self. So you think you think about this. What particular thought, action, or habit do you need to eliminate from your life in order to become like Jesus Christ? Okay, God gives you, uh, here's a good starting list. And so you have to identify that so that then you can repent of that and you can put it off. So repentance starts with identifying the sin so that you can bring this to God and then you can actually forsake it so that you can replace it. And that's, is it, how does that happen? Well, let's not miss out step number two here, which is be renewed in your mind. So step number two is be renewed in your mind. See, you're not going to do right unless you're thinking right. Does that make sense? You probably heard me say, not, again, not original with me, but uh, where does our methodology come from? Your methodology is driven by your theology. In other words, what you believe and what you think, you will live that out. That's why it's so important to have good theology, healthy theology, by the way. So it's important that we come to God's Word so that you can think right, come to God's Word, get God's viewpoint on the issues of life, so then you can deal with step number one properly. Then you can meditate upon truth, so then your mind is renewed. And then you can move on to step number three, which is to put on the new self. So, if you've identified a sin in your life, you come to God's Word, find the appropriate Bible verse or verses to help you think properly so that you can do right. So think of a new way of thinking or acting that is now in practice with being like Jesus Christ. Well, back to C.S. Lewis's story with the lizard and the stallion and the, the guy who was transformed. But anyway, let, let me ask you this. I want to end with this thought. Why did C.S. Lewis have a stallion soar with his rider? Why would he describe the freedom from your indwelling sin that way? Why would he do that? It wasn't just because he liked horses. 
<laughs> There's far more going on in his mind than that. So, of course, you say, well, what does the horse represent? If the lizard represents my indwelling sin, what's the horse? Well, the, the horse represents the truest self of that young man. And so when the lizard is killed, the real self finds his most rewarding and fulfilling life. It is the life of freedom that God offers to us as we kill that old self, and then we live the beauty that God has so graciously designed for us. Hopefully you agree that the, the beautiful stallion is better than the ugly red lizard. And so that's what Scripture calls us to do. It calls us to, to a, a recognition of our sin, and then a repentance of our sin, and the recognition of the poison in what is almost innocent. I love the way Lewis puts that. It's like real poison. Can, can you say it's almost innocent? You know, I, I've just added a few drops of poison to the water. It's almost innocent. Well, guess what? Almost innocent still kills you, right? If it's the right kind of poison. Uh, there is no almost innocent when it comes to our ungodly lifestyles and our sin. And so repentance of sin needs uh, to happen, needs to be recognized for for how that uh, is truly pleasing to God. God never intends to harm us, even though the expressions that warn us may hurt a great deal. It might it might come across that way, right? Uh, sometimes, if if particularly if we doubt God's goodness, we might we might feel like, oh man, God doesn't have my best interest at heart. Well, He does. <laughs> okay. And so the call to repentance is a call to a life of rich fulfillment. So just like this this young man, he his his soul was able to soar to heaven on this horse. And that's the way God intends for us. God wants you to find your truest self among His greatest joys. Do you believe that, though? See, there, there's, there's a couple ways you can look at a passage like this. You can look at this like, hmm, you know, I doubt God's goodness. I don't think God really has my best interest at heart. And if, if that's your unhealthy theology you're, you're going to come out with bad methodology out of this passage. You're going to say, ah, God doesn't have my best interests. He's not really good. Therefore, I don't want to do this. Because this is going to be painful. This is going to hurt, right? Well, that's one, one result. Or you can come with right theology and say, God is good. I can glorify God. He's the best. He wants what's best for me. He's got my best interest at heart. Therefore, wow, I know that's going to be hard. The godly lifestyle might hurt. It might actually be difficult. It's a painful process through my whole life. But because God is good and He has my best interest at heart, God, do this work in me so that I could glorify you. And I can actually live out the position that you've described in chapters 1 and 2. Do you see the difference? So may the theology of chapters 1 and 2 affect you so much that you, you live a life conformed to the image of Christ. May God enable us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reality of our position in Christ. May we understand this so that we would live it. May we understand how 
uh, we can please you and glorify you and honor you with our lives. May this give us great purpose and meaning to why we're still alive, why we're here. It's not just a meaningless existence. You have given us great purpose and meaning. Thank you for that. Thank you for showing that to us here. Would you make us godly people? Not just on Sundays, (laughs) but 24-7, every day, all the time. May we do it for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.